Thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast produced by the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In this episode, Women Forever, Jamaica Baldwin, Linda Garcia-Merchant, and Claire Jimenez share creative work and discuss their experiences both as women of color and as graduate students. The title of this episode comes from several sentences near the end of the prologue of Audre Lorde's Zami, A New Spelling of My Name. As a definition of the intergenerational relationship women of color writers have always had to the decolonial body, Lord writes, Woman forever, my body, a living representation of other life, older, longer, wiser. The mountains and valleys, trees, rocks, sand and flowers, and water and stone, made in earth. The other inspiration is a brief poem I wrote about producing this episode entitled Homage to Zami. Made in earth from dust to the sky, I travel to kiss the woman I love as myself, to hold the woman I know as my past, to share the woman I live as my present. I am Linda Garcia Merchant and am joined by fellow writers and UNL English Department graduate students Jamaica Baldwin and Claire Jimenez to consider a question asked by Lord, to whom do I owe the woman I have become? We will each present a selection of our own work, along with an origin story that reflects our own processes of rebellion, intervention, and translation required to create, retell, and construct the stories living within the space of genetic memory. We will also engage in a discussion that considers the following questions. As a woman of color living in Nebraska but not native to it, what does it mean to create in a space foreign to a story? How does this present space of now and today and Lincoln interact and collide or collude with the insistent perspective of content? In this space of production, do we have a responsibility to heed the voices of cultural memory as they sing and grieve and shout alleluia through our hands? Jamaica Baldwin's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Prairie Schooner, Third Coast Review, Hayden's Ferry, and Tri-Quarterly, among others. She was recently named winner of the 2019 San Miguel de Allende Writers' Conference Contest in Poetry and is the recipient of a Hedgebrook residency. Jamaica received her MFA from Pacific University, Oregon, and currently lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, where she is pursuing her PhD in creative writing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. I've selected two poems um, to read today. Uh, I wrote the following poem at a residency I attended last spring. I wrote it in a place unfamiliar to me, a place where I don't have roots or a history. Looking out at the trees, the birds, the bunnies, I wanted to reflect what I saw and felt in that environment. In attempting to write about nature, about the earth, I found myself writing about how much we have failed her. Of course, like most of my writing intentions, I veered from my original impulse and found myself thinking about the legacy of women who've come before me and how their stories and struggles are imprinted in my memory, in my body, especially the stories I've never been told verbally, the stories of women I've never met. The DNA of their pain and loss is in my body, literally and figuratively, 
In the same vein, I like to think that their joys and triumphs are also a part of my makeup. I've been thinking about my maternal grandmother lately, who is currently under hospice care. She was a woman for whom silence was a security she coveted. When dementia took control of her brain, she forgot to be silent, to acquiesce to others. She forgot to shield her body from judgment. Even as I mourned the woman I knew, I found satisfaction watching how quickly externally imposed self-silencing behaviors can be shed once our defenses are down. I think much of what I write is writing towards and against these defenses. This poem is called Portrait of a Woman with Wings in Oil. I speak in shapes of meaning, and I am just a woman with half a life lived or more. Which anointed grass, which sorcery of waters do I beseech through these charcoal map of lines? Am I not a marionette lamenting her strings? This pull and tug is a kind of deja vu. I have been here before in another body, under another headless night. Or perhaps it is all the same night, the same night tethering the tongues of my great-grandmothers and their mothers. That these shapes I make are tending the kindle of battle, that I am in the act of speaking, still speaking against, is why we have not yet moved beyond plague and pestilence why we have not earned the post-ash of suffering. It is why the permafrost is melting and our defense is the movement of slugs. What desolation of life will rise when the ice has melted? What dance will entertain us before the burning? What trick of light will mesmerize us first? Memory and language, the necessity of language and the impossibility of language to represent fully are consistent themes in my work. The next poem, A Language So Fraught, engages these themes as well as the role of self-imposed and externally enforced silence. A Language So Fraught. She speaks with many voices, pristine and filthy, dragging their tired chords through spilled blues. Within each voice, a voice emerged a voice subdued. She doesn't know which is louder till both end. Even then, the silence. Even then, she is betrayed by how gluttonous hers can be, hoarding words like a barrow bird hoards blue. Sometimes she wants to tame them, those greedy meaning makers. Sometimes she questions the kind of body that would lend itself to such fantasy that would acquiesce to a language so fraught with violence and cunning. They have made her in the shape of silence. They have left words to mold in her cage over and over again. They write her in a forgetful and more brutal language. She stands between the sand and the sand, full of want, and the words that rot her teeth is the ocean she drowns in. There is a point like death in which the body isn't a sight of breath, but a kind of breaking open, a slight exposure to the sun. In the language I've been given, I say her body underwater. In the language I can't return, I write her wounds in blood. In the language of my mother, I think my own demise is inevitable. 
In the language of my captors, I have stolen these words from another, thickened them with flour, made them stand up straight and act right. In the language I have not yet learned, I say the name I was denied. I speak with many voices, all of them. Someday I will rise, an ocean hell-bent on destruction and take what's rightfully mine. Linda Garcia Merchant is a doctoral student concentrating in U.S. Latina and Chicana literatures and digital humanities. As the co-founder of the Chicana por Mirasa Digital Memory Collective, Linda and Dr. Maria Cortea of the University of Michigan have produced over 125 filmed oral history interviews and collected more than 7,000 documents and ephemera from iconic figures of the Chicana and feminist movements. Linda's work as a scholar and award-winning filmmaker focuses on the restoration and reconstruction of the counter-narrative as an aid in rehabilitating the discourse of resistance and social movement. These days, I find that when I write, it often feels like purging. This piece, An Exorcism of Pining and Regret in Three Parts, took 10 years for me to even consider writing because it is about a breakup of a long-term relationship, but it is also about how two people began being together with the goal of eventually being apart. I recognize how strange we always were to one another and hope to capture that, not so much as an excuse, but certainly as a point of reference. It is in three parts, because the end of anything never happens all at once, but as the rhythm of erosion, kind of like watching the shoreline of a beach disappear in a week, or how kudzu takes over a fence to make the fence disappear in a day. Breaking up isn't about noticing the difference, it is about realizing how soon after you got together that breaking up actually begins. This is not pessimism about love. If anything, it is a challenge to recognize how discomfort in the choice of loving someone can end as regret and must be exercised in order to move in a direction that is other than circular. I chose to read this piece because moving to Lincoln also meant moving away from Chicago, a place I had lived most of my life. Spending time in this very different place, having a distance from the urban, multicultural familiar, has given me time and room to be retrospective. This space is foreign, and while I don't feel like I'm living in exile, I am reminded daily how much unlike home it is, until I return home and realize how much I am no longer like home. This piece reflects an ability to finally look at a significant moment from my past, from an actual distance and in a place where I don't see myself and others. That sense of alienation could be destructive without the ability to reimagine a history. As writers, we survive in our imaginary. As a woman of color, I have survived, supported by cultural memory, and I am restored by the conclusions drawn and the choices I now make. One of these choices was to create this episode, in other words, how, when, and where are we defined when we write? An Exorcism of Pining and Regret in Three Parts Part 1. The End I regret the thefts that robbed us of tomorrow. We were culprits then, strategic as emotional embezzlers, spending love down to debt, filling the emptied space with cheap knockoffs, broken faster than the moments made. I mourn the silence, strategically violent towards trust. We were unwilling then, passive with our tear-filled weapons, drowning hope, resistant to feel something less empty than the foundation of loss holding us hostage. 
I wonder still why we chose distance from each other. When you traveled and I made films and you never came back, knowing I didn't expect you would. And instead, I just kept working. Part two, the middle. Hard work has the luxury of success and little else. I made films, you made money to win the battle of the house, the cat, and the garden that still makes me weep at the bright blue of foxglove. But I kept my dreams, the dog, my tools, and my clothes, moved far away and across town to a craftsman bungalow with an oak fireplace and prairie-style stained-glass windows, but no you, to decisions about paint and furniture and toilet paper that would leave me gasping in the middle of the grocery store aisle at the freedom to choose and crying at the memory of arguing over Charmin. Part 3. The Beginning Everything we owned had some connection to discomfort. The extra firm California King and its nightly pressing against all the reminders of my sports injuries. The scratchy Scots tissue pressing against all your phobias about germs. We cut our grass, built a garage and a fence, picked up our leaves, put out our garbage and shoveled snow every winter. We could act suburban. We crafted a life we had seen others live suspecting it was just ritual. Yet you grimaced and then snapped every Saturday morning that I would ask, is this all there is? Your patience turned to pleading, then resignation. You would always reply, what more do you want? We seemed to like living in the familiarity of pain, our noisy neighbors, sweet, insistent, and curious, whispering to one another about the lesbians with music, guests, and socializing, that had nothing to do with them. We collected battalions of crap, as if volume had value enough to buy away the lonely. We each lay on the far side of the California King alone together, wishing for the regular breathing of sleep, hearing the irregular breathing through tears. We watched the streetlight turn to daylight. I wondered if I could ever sleep again without medication, therapy, or whiskey. I wondered if we had ever loved each other or just needed to manufacture this life because we could. Claire Jimenez is a PhD student in English with a concentration in ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She received her BA in English from Colby College and her MFA in creative writing from Vanderbilt University. Her short story collection, Staten Island Stories, is forthcoming from John Hopkins University Press in December of 2019. Her fiction essays and reviews have appeared in Boat, New Madrid, Afro-Hispanic Review, Pink, El Roommate, The Toast, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among other publications. You are a strange imitation of a woman. The AC broke overnight, so me and Dolores are sharing a fan between our attached desks. We're also sharing a bunch of data entries so that we can make Tuesday happy hour at Bruno's, although I'm not up feeling super up to it because they weighed me at the gyno this morning and I wanted to die. Going to the gynecologist always makes me wonder why anybody would want to fuck me, which is what I tell Dolores. Francis, she says from behind her computer, you said that very loudly. Then she points at Carrie, the office manager, who's flirting with the CEO by the soda machine. I lean across our attached desks. I tell her, listen, Dolores, who cares? I care, she says, and then just like that, turns back to her computer and starts typing. 
You care too much. Every night, Dolores cleans her desk with a wet wipey, then tilts the keypad towards the floor so she can spray the crumbs away with a can of air. This for a bunch of people who don't even look at her when they walk into the room. Don't even say good morning, which is what I've been trying to explain to Dolores without sounding ungrateful because she got me this job two months ago, and I don't want her to think I hate it, even though I do. But I will not let Dolores be duped. It is important that she discover the truth. How long have you been working here, I ask? A long time, Francis, she says, not bothering to look up, her plastic nails click-clacking on the keyboard. But how long? Dolores stops typing, then counts. Since before Adam, she says, Adam, who is her son in kindergarten. And how much do you make, I ask her, which is a dangerous question, I admit, nonetheless necessary. Who cares? I thought you cared. You're the one that cares, aren't you? It's none of your business, she says, even though already we've discussed her salary various times. I'm trying to make a point, I tell her. Are you? Now, whenever Dolores gets sarcastic, it makes me feel like the both of us are not very close at all. So I type loud and slow in order to make her laugh, but she doesn't. Dolores, how old are we? She sits there quiet, and I slam my fist on our attached desks, making our shared cubicle tremble. 37, woman. I count from 1999 to 2010 on my fingers. You've been working here 11 years and you make about $3,000 more than when, what you did when you started. That bitch, I point to Carrie, is 26, just started last year, and makes $15,000 more than you. This is Carrie who doesn't know how to use a fax machine or how to turn a document into a PDF or how to scan the invoices into the computer or even how to call the building manager so that we can use a freight elevator for deliveries. Although this woman is manager of the office, she does not actually know anything about managing the office, and everything she does not know, she makes me and Dolores do. If you are so dissatisfied, Francis, you should consider finding a new job, Dolores says. You find me a new job, I tell her. I'm going to find you a husband. Find yourself a husband. I'll find us both husbands, she says. I don't want one. And for a moment underneath the fluorescent light, I can't see Dolores' eyes behind her glasses. You know what I've been thinking about lately? Dolores peeks at me from behind her computer. What? You and my brother Carlos, I say, because it's a thought I've been having for a long time. Took up the two greatest people in my life and make the whole bunch of us family. Absolutely not, Dolores says. You can name that baby after me. In my head, I smash Carlos's and Dolores' faces, faces together. I try to picture her long nose above his fat chin and then calling that poor girl Francis. Francis the second. Lord, no, Dolores says, stop it. But she's smiling and you can tell she's sort of considering it. Think about it. That's all I'm saying, I tell her. Then she emails me an old invoice just to upset me on purpose. You formatted it wrong, Dolores points to the soda machine. Care will be furious. Most likely, I say. It doesn't take much. Then I staple something loudly. At Bruno's, Dolores will not go outside with me to smoke a cigarette because Adam has asthma. She says she thinks the smoke will cling to her blouse. She thinks... She thinks Adam will smell it tonight when Adam's father, Ralphie, drives up to the apartment and transfers Adam's sleeping body into her arms. She's scared Adam will wake up and start coughing. She's also trying to teach me a lesson. You're too old to be acting like we're 16, she says. Besides, it's hot. So outside I smoke alone. And as a result, this is what happens next. I'm standing there, minding my own business, and the skinny Dominican who works at the front desk at the building next to ours comes up to me and says, What are you doing out here alone? Beautiful, which is the part that really upsets me, the way he says beautiful sort of as an afterthought. 
Now, Tuesday happy hours are the only time Dolores can get Adam's father to take care of him for the night. Then after work, we can hobble to Bruno's to sit down, relax, and drink one $3 martini after another in order to understand the reality of things, how we really feel, aka the world. As a result, I'm not trying to hear nobody's bullshit, which is basically what it is, this guy coming up to me. I'm wearing a pair of size 10 JCPenney slacks from 2004, and I haven't even buttoned them because I can't. I'm a size 14. So I tell the Dominican who's got a face like a pit bull's narrow eyes and a wide mouth, I know what I look like. Then I go inside and sit next to Dolores, who's texting Adam's father fiercely. Ralphie left Adam and his mother instead of taking care of him his goddamn self, she says, then bangs the table with the, the cell phone. Now, this is a common problem that Dolores has. Even if somebody else is taking care of Adam, all she can think about is Adam. And I've known Adam's father, Ralphie, since all three of us were kids, smoking on top of Dolores' roof, looking at the rest of Brooklyn. And Ralphie's mother is a nice old Puerto Rican lady who feeds you and feeds you and feeds you. Much more reliable than Ralphie, who's 36 and smokes weed like he's still 14. So to me, the grandmother's a much better babysitter. But I don't tell Dolores this because I understand that when you got a son and you take care of him with every inch of your day and the father don't do shit, you have a right to be upset, even if those things don't make sense to be upset about. From the very beginning, Dolores stabs a table with her pointer finger. The very beginning, I shrug and nod at the same time. Every year it gets harder for me to love somebody new, I say. Dolores shakes her head as if I don't get it. Me, I'm simple. I've loved the same people I've loved my whole life. So uh, this is a story that's part of a collection I just wrote um, of short stories called Staten Island. And I found that within the collection of stories that I kept on uh, writing about work and how work shapes us. I think the work that women do, especially women of color, is often undervalued or unseen. I definitely felt that way working in both retail and later in nonprofits after I graduated college. I mean, you would be in a space that's supposed to be progressive and uh, folks are still patronizing, if not straight up disrespectful to women of color. And so I think for myself, but also for a character like Francis, you're living in what James Baldwin describes as his constant state of rage. I connect to Francis in this way when I think about how women of color are still so grossly underrepresented in literature and literary magazines. This is an old problem. We see lack of representation back in the 70s and 80s, and women like Sherry Moraga, Audre Lorde, Alice Walker, Gloria Anteldua, trying to create spaces for women to speak and write. In Cuentos, Stories by Latinas, the 1983 anthology published by Kitchen Table, um, the editors explain, most Latinas, in looking to find some kind of literary tradition among our women, will usually speak of the cuentos our mothers and grandmothers told us. This knowledge is what we hold close to our hearts, and when leafing through the volume after volume of anthologies of literature, American and Latin American, and seldom seen a name or a line by a Latina writer that speaks accurately of our experience, for the most part, our lives and the lives of the women before us have never been fully told except by word of mouth. Cuentos was an attempt to gather these stories together and to make sense of the struggles these different Latina authors shared by exploring repeated themes and metaphors. Gomez, Moraga, and uh, Roma Carmona also emphasized that Latina voices were often eclipsed by those of men during the different cultural and civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. Women of color, they wrote, were either, quote, fucking silent or fucking silently. Fast forward 40 years, and it's like we're still dealing with the same shit. You got Donald Trump blasting April Ryan for asking him a question. He's turning around saying, you're a stupid woman. I mean, somebody might say, oh, that's just Donald Trump. But the truth is, 
there's a lot of Donald Trumps in the world, and not all of them are Republicans. Some of them are liberal Democrats. Some of them voted for Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, but they still treat women of color like shit. Um, and I guess I'm just also interested in the ways in which the choices of women of color are often limited because we can't afford to find a new space to live or a new job. For Francis, I'm also very much interested in mental health and the body. Even though France, Francis is loud and funny, in many ways her experience is invisible and she's a misunderstood character, I wanted to give her a chance to tell her story. It's a good, a good starting point to have this conversation, or at least begin this conversation, is to talk a little bit about um, what we each, how we have each experienced each other's work, right, in this moment of witness. That word. Um, I'll, I'll start. I, I'm, I'm in awe of both of you. I've always been. I've, I've heard you read um, in public and in class. And, and I just really, again, one of the reasons I want to do this is because I really connect with the, 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 the construction of language that you both use and how, and, and how your voice is so strong in that construction. Um, just in the way you go, what? <laughs> oh, that's so nice. <laughs> but it's true. I just, that you know, so it's, nice. yeah. it isn't just conversation. I mean, it isn't just in conversation. I mean, I love talking to the two of you in general because you're brown people, right? Yeah. And we're in Lincoln. Yeah. And I hate to make that obvious comment, but it's true. It, it, it feels, it makes me feel present. Yeah, it's interesting because when thinking about your piece, I, I remember when you brought that piece to workshop um, this past semester, and one of the things that I kept on thinking about was like how it, it captures sort of like the loneliness that sometimes happens, you know, if you're a woman of color activist, if you're in a space where, you know, whatever, if you're queer and of color, you know, like what are the different ways in which you kind of feel shut off? And so I think that that really captured, that piece really captured that for me when you're thinking about love and loss of love and also feeling alienated. Yeah, it did. It, yes, yes, it does. Um, and I, I, I think in, in terms of your work, I, I, I find myself, I, I love the whole conversation between Francis and, and what's the Dolores. one? Dolores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just with the whole pointed nail tapping on the, I, I've had visions of working in private industry and, <laughs> and knowing that woman with the perfectly manicured nails mm -hmm. that, are, that are a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of an emotional weapon. Yeah, yeah. Your turn. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was struck by, in your piece, Claire, um, there was so much humor, which is not uh, surprising knowing you. There's so much humor in the conversation between the women. But then in your piece about the story, you have that quote by James Baldwin that talks about, um, what was the exact quote? The constant state of rage. The constant anger, state of rage. Yeah. And then later on, you say something about, um, uh, well, I don't know if you say it, but it's something about the use of humor or humor as sort of like a mask and and I'm and I'm just wondering I know for myself that humor is often is often the place I go to when I'm in rage mm -hmm. because I don't know what other outlet there is for that yeah. you know especially being a woman of color and so, so I was just curious if you could 
talk a little bit yeah. about that. I think you got that from probably our conversations before because it's, it's that in there, but that's definitely true. Like, mm-hmm. I always think about in terms of how the ways in which people of color use humor to survive, mm-hmm. like, the really fucked up shit, you know? And then also feeling powerless and out of control. Like, there's humor in that story, but later on, you know, it's a, it's a much longer piece. There's a lot of rage, you know? And it just sort of, it's it slowly just rises to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, I'm interested in, with a lot of my stories, where humor breaks down, mm-hmm. you know, like where humor, where humor saves us, but then where, when it's no longer efficient, when it, it when it's, we're trying for it to do something, but it's actually undoing, you know, the, the opportunities for us to just be angry, you know. So. Right. And even, and even in that one moment, or towards the end of the dialogue, even though it was wasn't quite breaking down fully I think at least I could feel some of that hints of darkness just in the sarcasm you know mm-hmm. um and I, I yeah you get the glimpses yeah. of the rage yeah yeah, yeah. I mean t- I mean would you make I, I think about your piece I love this line right like the words that are rotting the the, the teeth right and and for me I mean that that sits in a much larger t- tradition when I think about uh, women of color writers over the past, you know, 40, 50, 60 mm-hmm. years, where you get this image of silence, you get this image, you know, so Audrey Lord has seen some words live in my throat, like mm-hmm. adders, I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have the total line, but like, we're still, you know, you have all that, de- all these decades later, there's this experience in which there's something definitely at stake when we speak, right? Yeah. And that, and how, and, and, the idea of words running in your mouth because they couldn't come out or even like even the risk of speaking and what might it do like if you let the, that brush up against yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you want no, to live it in Nebraska? Are you ready for some rage? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, well, I, so yeah, I, I, I am curious about, about rage and anger and, and living in spaces that seem to and not to not to say that Lincoln does that but that because it isn't just Lincoln it's graduate school I mean it Mm -hmm. is also I mean we are all three of us are graduate students and we're living in a very interesting time where anger isn't just something that and rage isn't something that we just are living in from from a history of rage and a history of anger and a history of oppression Mm -hmm it's it's present and it's sort of it's it's ubiquitous and it's sort of the culture of conversation more often than not and and i wonder what does that mean to producing and creating i mean how how i mean i don't even know how to ask this question it's i guess i guess what i'm curious about for the two of you is i find well here maybe if i offer an example i find that when anger is too much and humor is no longer a, a, a shield or a, or, mm-hmm. or a preventative measure, right. what, what other actions do you take to exercise that anger? I, I find, you know, loud music or dancing in the hall, people are like, oh, you're always dancing. It's like, yeah, so that I don't beat you to death because for no reason other than you're standing in the hallway, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that kind of sort of incoherent rage right. that I feel 
these days. And I know it is because of how life is, not just being a graduate student or being, I don't think Lincoln has anything to do with it. I think it has to be the state of the world. And so, so what do you do? I mean, how do you, how do you channel that action into text or do you? You know what? No, please. Good. Oh, um, I was just going to say for me, I mean, poetry entered my life because of rage. Mm -hmm. So for me, it is, the space in which I feel safe expressing that. So 90% of the poems I write, I would say, are angry or dark or whatever you might say. You know, but they're so um, beautiful. <laughs> it's so funny because it's... But darkness, saying, but darkness and well, anger darkness can be beautiful like, too, it doesn't, you know? And, but you don't think of anger as beautiful. And you think I do. Really, I, I mean, I just, coming well, from yeah, women, yeah. coming from women, I do. Yeah. Okay. Why? Why? What about what about it is beautiful? And I don't talk about like fiery passion or any of those tropes and stereotypes that we're always talking about. You know, brown women and that sort of oh, they're fleshy, kind of spitfiery that nonsense. I talk about like real, like kind of a little scary. <laughs> Like the ugly anger, the ugly yeah, rage. Yeah, ugly anger, you know? yeah, ugly rage. What is, how is that beautiful? How, how do you see it as beautiful? Because it's not um, advertised, you know? It's not something that we accept as, an, you know, an everyday part of our, our life. We're not, we're not... At least for me. I mean, I can't speak for all women, but, you know, I, um, even though I was raised by a very feminist mother who liked to think of herself as an activist, and she was very, um, very left, way far left, you know, of the spectrum, I still received those unspoken messages about how women are supposed to, to be and behave. And I, you know, I learned that a long time ago, and I know a lot of women experience the same thing and so for me and I read about that I mentioned that about my grandmother about the silence and for me I think it was also a, a form of security you know so if I don't if I'm if I'm nice and I don't say the wrong thing then I'll be safe in some way right and when I discovered poetry was after um, uh, a traumatic event in my life and and it was just, it was the space in which I didn't feel like I was risking my life to be mm. anger, angry, you know? Okay. I don't know if that... No, it does. I think it makes sense. For me, I was thinking, I was, I was looking at my phone because I was trying to remember the exact title, but, you know, uh, for colored girls who have considered mm -hmm. suicide when, you know, the rainbow is enough, I, I think about that yeah. one skit where she's like, somebody almost walked off with all of my shit, right? You yeah. know, and that's, I, and I thought of that scene when, when you pose this question about when have you seen anger that's beautiful? That is like, it's stunning. When the first time I saw that performed, mm -hmm. you know, just like, you feel it on your skin, right? And there's something so glorious about seeing somebody stand up for themselves. Yeah. And I think that's where the beauty comes. And that's where you see, you know, this playwright you know, uh, making something gorgeous, using art mm -hmm. out of you know, these ugly circumstances, right? Out of rage, yeah. Because it's a rage. 
you know, you, you come here and it is, it's, it's, it's quiet and traditional and not so much rural, but definitely not as urban as I was used to. Um, and it's nice, but nice has its own very odd language or just unusual language that requires learning. Um, I don't think that I can, I don't, I, I'm learning how to speak in that language. Um, I think it will be beneficial going back into places other than Nebraska, because Nebraska is a very unique place. That's not a bad thing, but it's a very, and in that way it is insular in that uniqueness. I mean, it's not Kansas, it's not Colorado, it's not even Iowa, it's, and it's definitely not Wisconsin. Um, but it is also surreal more often than not in its traditionalness. Yeah. So I, I think I had to I had to go back to a place that I recognized and understood that was that gave me comfort even in its sort of sadness and trauma. But it was a place I knew and a place that I recognized and I needed to have in my life in order not to Want to beat somebody over the head with a bat? Yeah, let's talk about rage. <laughs> so yeah, what about you, Claire? Well, that that story actually, I wrote a lot of it in New York, but I did finish it inside of Nashville when I was at my MFA at Vanderbilt, and so. Um, but one of the things that I had thought about when we originally were thinking about this podcast was this question about writing in Nebraska, writing away from where you're from, and how, and for me how that registers, you know, with both Nashville and Lincoln is that these were spaces in which I could write and reflect. Whereas when I was in New York, you're constantly on the go. You have three or four different jobs. You're trying to catch the bus and the boats and, you know, every piece of transportation except a plane, right? And so then you have no, often you're just on go and you have no time to reflect. And so in a way, you know, even though some of these spaces can feel like alienating, sometimes they provide you with the stillness to look back and and sort of bring the, the stories into focus. And so I think, right, finishing that story in Nashville gave me, you know, that opportunity. Yeah. What about you, Jamaica? Um, well, one of the poems I wrote here last fall, and I think it might have been written elsewhere, um, but I've been away from my home or where I was raised for 15 years, and I've done a lot of moving. Um, so I think if we were having this conversation my first year in a new place, it would be a different story. But um, I think what these programs do, though, is, like you said, Claire, offer that space for reflection, you know, um, and I think it's one of the, there's a benefit to being in this graduate, any graduate program and living in a Midwestern town like Lincoln is the space. But I also think the space can be overpowering in some ways. I mean, the isolation of it and the lack of connection to the communities that you, you know, 
that you get your energy from, that you thrive off of. So I think that's probably the hardest part. But I can't quite say yet how this place in the, in the year that I've been here is changing or affecting my writing at this point. You mentioned time. Both of you mentioned that you know we have the we have the luxury of time to write now and to think about the things and, and create the focus. Going with this question. <laughs> where, gonna, am I, where am I going with this question? Well, you, no. say you, you have time, but you don't really have time. Is that what you? No, no, no I think I think you're right. I think because I what yeah before when I wrote it was yeah on trains and buses because. Mm-hmm. I had the time I wasn't driving. Yeah. I I resent driving very much because it takes time away from the place I like to write, which was on a train. <laughs> I wrote, you know, yeah, I was always in the same space, but it was the channeled focus 35 minutes mm-hmm. of commuting where I really wrote a lot of stuff. Most of the stuff I've got published was not only because I was pissed off, but because I had time to write it on the train, you know. And edited at lunchtime, and always would carve out these times, these very concentrated minutes, and that was the hardest thing to get used to. Here was, you know, sh- sort of shifting gears and saying, "Oh, in a way, the luxury of time is now this overwhelming experience because I have time to think about this one thing mm-hmm. and sit in at a desk and think about this one thing when I'm used to looking at a train window or." walking to a thing or hair, you know, crafting in my head what I'm going to put down when I actually am sitting in the space. So yeah, I, 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 and now when I go home, I'm totally thrown off from that. With I, you know, city's too fast, there's too many people, it's too noisy, it's all these things that it never was. Can I say, so for you guys, do you feel, uh, and do you feel like... Except for the pizza. In academia, except for the pizza. <laughs> in, in academia, sort of, in these spaces where you have to write that inside that stillness that the critic's voice inside your head becomes louder? Do, oh, yeah. Definitely, for sure. Definitely. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. For a long time, I had, I was second, I had to think, I had to stop listening to the voice in my head second guessing every, every sentence, mm-hmm. word, and, and, and really, just say out loud, stop, stop, yeah. stop. You you do this. You came here doing this. Yeah. Go back to that. Yeah. Go back to that person who wasn't constantly listening to that, right. you know, questioning voice. And it's there. It's real. But I mean, it's it's you. We don't. the The great thing about anger mm-hmm. is it is focused, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's focused on a thing, and that thing is what motivates you to want to put it down on paper in some kind of a way. Um, and that anger is not listening to that voice. Right. Right? That anger is, is you, are, you are centered in that moment and drawing on not just your anger, but the anger of your mother's 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 mother that was dealing with probably <laughs> the same kind of challenge to intergenerational violence yeah so you're saying the challenge to validation right not even just the not even the violence i mean Mm -hmm. violence is important but just the challenge to validation it's like oh you're studying that and why are you studying that again and who is that person and oh i should read you know that sort of 
that sort of picking at you yeah. voice of yeah. doubt. <laughs> that, that's gaslighting in a way, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, 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 when you focus on the anger and you're listening to the anger, you're not hearing the rest of that. And that anger is coming from all these other places, just like the humor. It's coming from tu abuelitas, abuelitas, abuelita, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, so where's the voice in your head? Is it doing that or no? Oh, the the critic's voice? Mm-hmm. The critic's voice is like, oh, this story sounds stupid, right? Like you just say, you know, you, you open up the page, you hate everything. But then you also start to think like, all right, well, you know, is should my writing look more like this? You know, and so, but I, I have to actively, you know, fight that to make sure that my my the the voice stays there not to say that I think there there's growth for me to become a better writer and I hope I never stop growing as a writer but I don't want to lose my voice and then I think sometimes when we think about the ways in which you know stories get revised the different suggestions sometimes that feedback is just trying to revise the voice out of it and I have to really think very carefully about whether or not is this is this the type of feedback that's going to help me grow my story, or is this a feedback that's going to steal the voice? And sometimes it's hard. It's a hard call, you know. Yeah. Did you you say yeah? Do, do you experience this too, Jamaica? <laughs> oh, she's saying cry. She's she's bunched yeah, up about. Yeah, there's a whole lot of that Next question. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's that's fair. Um. Well, okay. So. So. Have there been moments, I mean, we're all willing to fight for that voice and we're willing to fight for the, 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 to, to either clarify a story if, if that is the issue, right? I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to make changes if there, if it's an issue of clarity, but if it's an issue of voice, I'm, I'm, I'm reticent. Um, but, but I think it takes a lot. But sometimes people might, I mean, like, but, you know, you, that, that can get flipped on its head real quick because somebody might say that your voice is an issue of clarity, right? Like, so then, for example, if I'm, which I sometimes have to fight in terms of, like, say, let's, an easy example is when you have Spanish, you know, that oh, is inside gosh, of it, right? Yes. Like, and it's, and that's part of the voice in which that character speaks, right? But then somebody wants you also now to translate in the next sentence, which I find highly corny, you know, like, unless it's, you know, it's coming out of a place where the, the poet or the writer felt like they had to, you know what I mean? But otherwise, if that's not part of the voice, why would you translate it, right? But the argument can go, oh, well, it's for clarity, you know, and it's just... And I yet, think that we you never have, have to, to translate be... French or Italian. You ever notice yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. But we always seem to have to translate Spanish. I don't know why that is, but... But I mean, I mean, Spanish is one example, but there's so much other, right? Like certain d- different cultural landmarks, different, co- you know, references, different slang, uh, even whether recognizable characters, you know, like. Or character relationships, like the, the, the part of culture that allows, that doesn't understand you know, extended family as actual family and mm-hmm. having those kinds of relationships with family that are extended family and, mm-hmm. and as as a as a as an intimate body as opposed to this yeah. is your second cousin twice removed and it's like no that's my primo. Yeah. That's my primo, right? It's just they're not there's no diff there's no delineation, there is no hierarchy. It's just family. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile nobody has to explain to me like, 
you know, the logistics behind their trust fund, right? Like, I'm like, wow, that's foreign to me. I need some clarity on that. Where's my trust fund? <laughs> right? So I'm interested in talking a little bit about um, what are our experiences as women of color writers in academia? Uh, what are the challenges we face and what are the strategies we use to navigate through them? So I think, so I'll start. Um, I think one of the big challenges for me uh, working in a space, again, and I know we talked a little bit about working in a space of anger and how anger has, has always been a motivator for me in writing. It, it, you know, I, um, Jamaica, you mentioned this when we first started doing this. And I thought, yeah, I, I, some of my best writing has come from the sort of energy that occurs when I am really angry and passionate about something, and usually in the space of anger. Um, and that's always been a familiar space for me to write. But more recently, since I've been here in Lincoln, um, I'm discovering that the rage I have, or the anger that I have, is actually rage. And, and I'm not, while I'm very familiar with, the, with, with writing from an angry space, I'm very unfamiliar with rage. And rage... And not so much because of, because the rage feels um, undefined. It's 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 as it has the same level of passion, but it doesn't have a functional passion. And so that rage. But I'm I'm very aware of it. I, I'm I'm living in the middle of it. It's it's centering me, and I am clueless and mystified what to do with it in some moments because it is so there is so much energy involved that it that that is 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 in some in some ways it's beautiful but in most ways it's not it's not conducive to writing and so my challenge in writing through anger or writing in the space of this rage is 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 finding a way to step step back from it enough to look at it and say to, to to say what it is to define it as something, and that's that's been my challenge in writing, in writing in this in in writing in a space where anger has always been productive and now it's not. Mm. So that's that's been the biggest challenge for me. So I guess, like, what are the ways then that we figure out how to deal with rage so that you can get back to the actual page? Like, how do you, I, I know for myself, I think that, you know, the women inside this room, for example, uh, have been wonderful resources in terms of community, right? And, and being able to, if something messed up happens, then I get to sit and, and, you know, say, hey, you know, Jamaica, Linda, let's go out for a drink. Let's go talk, you know. And, and that sometimes gets me in a space where I can get past that and then get back to the page. For me, then it becomes a, a matter of community, right? Um, but I'm curious as to, like, what what have been your guys' experiences? You know what I think? I think that, <laughs> I think, because as you mentioned that, you know, you talk about the, the, the three of us in this room and, and us coming together and having a moment together to, yeah, to find some sort of focus in that, right? When you're having one of those very, very angry 
unproductive moments or unproductive moments. Um, I think, <laughs> I think what always happens in those moments is that someone finds the humor in that anger yeah. or in that rage that helps. Absolutely. It, I forget who, who writes about this, uh, about the power of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that's very, that's very much about the decolonial body, right? That we always look for humor because if you can find humor in a moment, then you've regained that moment, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, so yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and it hasn't just been, my experience here has always been when women of color come together, there is this sense, there is a convergence of that energy and you are expending this energy in this moment and the women around you are drawing from it and giving it back to you as humor and giving it back to you as hope and giving it back to you as, as manageable. Yeah. And I think there is, it's, it becomes this transactional moment, yeah. which is so necessary to the writing. And it influences, I mean, and then it, it translates to the writing too. Like I know that personally, like my writing, I'm, I'm constantly like dealing with that, you know, the balance between humor and anger, right? And humor and, and trauma, right? And that's not something that's new. That's not something that's individually mine. That's something that happens in a lot of communities of color. You see Legazamo doing this in Freak, right? Where yeah. there's, where he, he starts to perform these stereotypes that have been used against him, right? But making the person that he he's he's uh, mimicking seem more and more absurd, right? So he's making the audience laugh at the person who's using the stereotype against him, right? right. And this is uh, and then you know laughter is power. If I can if I can I, you may not agree with me, but if I can get you to laugh, your body disagreed with me. There's a visceral reaction there that has shifted something, right? Yeah, I thought about. So this, yeah, I mean, I, I think in those convergences, there's this transactional moment that has to occur that is about witness, you know, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm giving witness to this rage, but you're also receiving this witness and giving it back to me as humor and hope and all of those things. And in that, that you know, the resistance then becomes collective, right? So I wanted to go back to the point you made, Linda, about the productivity of anger versus rage. Um, and it made me think about this podcast I recently listened to in which civil rights activist Ruby Sales, on the topic of race in America said, love is not antithetical to anger. There are two kinds of anger, redemptive anger that moves you to transformation and human upbuilding and non-redemptive anger the anger that white supremacy roots itself in. So we have to make a distinction. People think that anger in itself is a bad emotion, but it's where you begin your conversation. Mm, and, absolutely. And I think when I started writing poetry, I think that was the place in which I was beginning my conversation, both with my own experiences and with the world and with a people Um, who were reading my work. Um, And I wanted to maybe hear from both of you guys a little bit about the the beginning, the conversation and the role of rage or anger in that. So, so you're writing, so the anger was redemptive? Is that my understanding for you? Yes, 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 yes. Um, 
Was it necessary? The anger? The anger. Yeah. Was I mean, it was necessary? That the motivator for you? Was it necessary to write yeah. because of that? Yeah. I think so. So it was the catalyst or it was just the motivation? There's a reason I'm asking this. Um, I think it was both. Oh, okay. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That that makes sense. That makes sense. If you it it was it a did it feel like an epiphany? Like a moment of awareness, an acute awareness that says, oh, if I don't do something with this in this moment, I'm going to lose it or it's going to be lost. I need to, I need to capture this. Now. I think so. Well, when it occurred um, was when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And... That's a catalyst. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> I was reading a lot of books, um, and one of the books I was reading and other women that I talked to were was speaking to this idea of the place where women hold their anger in their bodies, and many women hold their anger in their chest, you know, and I was making leaps, obviously, and I needed something to justify this, right, but I'm thinking breast cancer, and I'm thinking having a childhood where I wasn't really allowed to express anger and what that does to a body, like the actual body, right? And so in that moment of beginning to write poetry, I think it was a form of life or death. So is not expressing anger going to kill me? And in some way, I think for me in that moment, the answer was yes. Wow. You know, um, and so... so self-preservation. <laughs> well, it was also like exhaling, you know, it was, it was self-preservation, but it was also like, I need to get it this, that out, right? Um, and, and I never really had an outlet for that before. I think I spent so much of my life um, trying not to be the ang- angry black woman. You know, trying not to fit into stereotypes and not just that stereotypes, but all all of these stereotypes coming from, you know, when you're uh, raised on welfare and you're, you're, you know, all of these things that can pigeonhole you. I tried so hard not to feed that, that I ended up, you know, not allowing myself um, to express anger and to express rage and to say what I feel about things. And so I think... It was in that moment that, you know, it it wasn't quite a light bulb. I think it was slowly getting there, but the cancer definitely pushed me over over the hill. When you first read work from this output, from this moment, mm-hmm. did it feel like an out-of-body experience? Like, Wait, I'm sorry, say that so, what you mean? So, so the first time I realized how angry I could be mm-hmm. in writing mm-hmm. was writing a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And watching it being performed, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Wow, I didn't realize I was, I did, I didn't know that I could be that kind of angry." Yeah. I was, I was thought I hit it really well, yeah. or at least, you know, didn't present it publicly in any way. Mm-hmm. And then to hear my work read out, you know, performed, I was, I was, yeah. it was, I was stunned yeah. that I could be that angry, yeah. and that I could, that other people could, and I thought, "Oh my gosh." I'm so revealed in this moment all the time that I kind of stopped writing for a little while because I was worried that I was being too revelatory. Yeah. I was terrified. I was terrified. The first few times I had to read in public, I 
didn't know. I mean, I, I was terrified because I had never said these kinds of things out loud to people mm-hmm. other than my close, you know, close yeah. family and friends. Um, um, but each time it did feel good, you know, and each time it got easier. Um, and the feedback I got from people, especially women who weren't just saying I liked your poem, but were saying I needed that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. was... There's kind of no words for that. And I think that's what kept me going in, in, in spite of the, the fear. So, so the witness. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what kept you going. Wow. And Thanks. being able to speak for women who were, are maybe in places I was five or ten years ago who weren't able, aren't able to say that and saying it in ways that spoke to them. You know, I, there's something powerful about that. I think it's it's also a real testament to what how we don't, you know, how we all and I think I can speak for all of, all three of us, how we we do buy into the myth of the superwoman, mm-hmm. and how how easy it is to believe that yes we can do yes we can go yes we can be, and and perform these this sort of Herculean existence mm-hmm. that destroys us if we don't yeah don't say no yeah <laughs> and yeah. then rest yeah and the thing that makes me angry often is when as women and especially women of color we're expressing ourselves through fiction or through um storytelling projects or digital humanities or poetry and people who listen to it or watch it perceive it as being dark or, mm-hmm. or, you know, I was that were intense, you know? Um, and that's something that those are reactions that I still get. And I don't really know what to do with it. I get angry, but I don't really know what to do with it. I think it's interesting too. I mean, and this ties back to this idea of being allowed to yeah. women of color, are not allowed to express their anger. Right. And yeah. then, and so you see this, um, you, you see sort of that in in the the judgments or the ways in which people describe the writing. Mm-hmm. You also see that in academia and the way in which, you know, oh, she, you know, she's getting a little, you get a little too emotional right now, yeah. you know? And so where, so people get gaslit into staying quiet or to performing this sort of like uh, <laughs> emotionally clinical, like <laughs> uh, response to horrific, yeah. terrifying and, you know, just evil Shit. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. So, yeah, and it's, do you ever feel in those moments when you make the choice to not, to, 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 to be that, to be noncommittal, to be diplomatic, to be politic? When you, I don't when do you, it. You never? I don't, no, I don't do it. See, I don't have I to do it. I don't do it. I mean, like, I'm, I'm at the point where I think maybe when I was younger, I, you know, like, and I didn't have, I've, I think I've gotten to the point now where I kind of don't care if somebody, you know, oh, she's too angry. You know, I don't, I mean, I understand that's different for a lot of other people, but I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Linda's looking at me like, 
Girl. <laughs> you went a little diplomatic yesterday, you, Claire. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you're, you're, I, I would have never guessed that because I always, you always strike me as quite diplomatic. I mean, politics. Oh, that's interesting. But, and, and I think, I, I mean, I know, I mean, I've been in situations with you or circumstances with both of you, I mean, in, in just public settings and thought. And knew that some of the same thoughts going through my mind were probably going through yours about whatever was happening in that moment. Um, but also knowing that none of us were going to address it because it's bigger than us and really is that a battle, right? I mean, it's like you, you pick and choose. You um, in the grand scheme of things, there is tomorrow and you can, you know, fight on another day if we all have the luxury tomorrow, right? What I think is, what I, I do was, find is yeah. that I will channel it into my writing. Mm. Like, I'm really upset about this. Why am I really upset about this? This is why I'm really upset about this. And then I, it, it, and for, for me now with the anger, the catalyst is to write. Mm-hmm. The catalyst is to document, not necessarily write prose or poetry or anything, but to document so that I then may or may not revisit in the form of some writing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if I'm, because if I don't, then it nags at me that I didn't address it in some kind of a way. And I always feel like writing doesn't necessarily distance us from it. If anything, it sort of it, it, it solidifies the fact that you have an opinion about something or you're, you have a you have a position or a perspective that you're going to eventually share publicly. Um, and that's etched in stone now because it's written. But I also think that if it by the time it gets to that form for me, by the time it gets to that form, it really is looking at the anger as a bigger picture issue. Mm-hmm. Like, if it is racism, if it is some ism, if it is some challenge, if it is some obstruction or something, I'm going to address it from a, a, a more a broader perspective because it is a story with a lot of different tellings, right? Mm-hmm. I guess, like, when I originally heard that question, I was thinking more in terms of, like, when people are talking about, you know, something Trump said or, you know, deportation or little kids getting held at the border, you know, like, I don't feel the need to be diplomatic about that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so those... And, and, and I feel like I've gotten to a point in my life where I don't need to be diplomatic about that, right? But I do understand, but as you continue to talk more, I realize that you're talking about some of these, like... Or maybe I, this is what I'm projecting, right? But, like, sort of the slighter and smaller things that happen where it's, like, it's in this gray area and you're like, did she really just say that about me? Is she really... You know, like... And then you you have to in in that case yeah I still feel you know because you're inside of these academic the settings it's a professional you know like yeah. you have to perform this professionalism you know and so you can't be you can't say some of the words that I can't say on this podcast <laughs> so you know but um yeah so no I get I feel you that is a big thing it is yeah. diplomacy and diplomacy yeah constantly is exhausting. <laughs> it, is. Yeah, it is it is absolutely um, absolutely but the one thing that i take solace in here and i guess this speaks a little to what you brought up before linda about space is this academic space even though i'm in a 
probably, I've lived in a lot of cities, but I would say Lincoln is probably the, the whitest city that I've lived in. Yeah. I find more consistent, steady, dependable kinship with women of color here than right. I've had in cities where That's I've had a lot of bigger community. Mm. And I think, if, if I'm thinking about it, the reason for this is in cities where I have a larger community, as far as numbers, everyone is hustling mm -hmm. and everyone is busy and it's hard to find time mm -hmm. to be with each other. And it's hard to find that space, whether it's logistically getting across town or just scheduling. Um, but here, through force, you know, we're, we live in the same neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. We see each other on campus. Mm -hmm. It's easier for us to show up for each other. And there's something really beautiful in that that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we have that may not be a beautiful reason, but the fact that it's there is something that I, that I cherish about this. Absolutely agree. You know, that's true. I agree. I think, I think, and I think that really speaks to, and I'm going to say this here, I really think that speaks to women of color feminism. Yeah. I think that, you know, and, and having lived through, here's my intergenerational moment, having lived through a couple of iterations of this, I see the kind of sisterhood that we have, because it really is sisterhood, mm -hmm. um, that my mother had as a second wife feminist. I see mm -hmm. that kind of comadrazo yeah. right? that we had that 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 community that fellowship that always happens when we that convergence that always happens when we come together um that is about humor that is about the irony of the moment that we're living in and and the moments of our academic existence and personal existence and writing existence i mean all of these things it really does feel like this convergence every time we do get any kind of a chance to get together mm -hmm. over anything because it is we are few in number, mm -hmm. and we are going through relatively the same experiences. I mean, obviously different experiences, yeah. but we're going through the same experiences as graduate students, as graduate students in the English department, as all these things. Um, and we're in the same incubator. Right. You know. And that's a good way to describe so it. So the pressure cooker, we're, having, we're having the same trajectory and the same pressure cooker experience. So I think that creates that similarity and, you know, being able to speak to similar experiences is... It's a shorthand. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, that, you're right, it's, a be it's beautiful. And I guess in that way our anger gets to be beautiful, right? Because, you know, it gets to be witnessed. It, we, have, we get these transactional moments where we can all, like, return to sanity. Because sometimes that anger does make you a little bananas mm -hmm. yeah. and and I will honestly say it does frighten me sometimes mm -hmm. because it is so because it, it, it there it, it reaches the point of this sort of impotent I which when when that kind of energy is happening in you and you've got no place to channel it it's got to go somewhere and just like you were saying it goes back on your body mm -hmm. in destructive ways oh, and so I think so you're absolutely true. right that we have to have an outward motion of, of that kind of channeling and that kind of rage. And I think those convergences allow that to happen. Kind of like support group, in a way, without all the 
Yeah. And I think, you know, it's multifaceted. I don't think I could only have the pen and paper or the computer as my only outlet for rage. And I, I think you have to have this, too. Yeah. You have to be able to come together and talk it out or cry it out or drink it out with a bottle of wine yeah. or whatever you choose to do, you know. I mean, I think you have to have a lot of out a lot of ways to food to food yeah Yeah. drink water go to therapy (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of the plain state podcast women forever plain state is produced by robert lipscomb Post-production by Stephen Ramsey. Music by Shadows on a River. Special thanks to Jamaica Baldwin, Linda Garcia Merchant, and Claire Jimenez for their contributions to this episode. Plain State is a production of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Zainab Sala. Thank you for listening.